Chapter 17 Christ and the Old Testament Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. These verses, although they are a continuation of what has gone before, nevertheless mark the beginning of a new section in the sermon. Hitherto we have seen that our Lord has been concerned to describe the Christian. First, we have been reminded of what we are. Then we have been told that, this being so, we must ever remember it and let our life be such that it will always be a manifestation of this essential being of ours. It is like the parent saying to the child who is going away from home to a party, Now remember who you are. You must behave in such a way that you reflect glory and honor upon your family and your parents. Or the same appeal is made to children in the name of the school or to its citizens by a country. That is what our Lord has been saying. We are children of God and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Because of that, we have to manifest the characteristics of such people. We do this in order to manifest His glory and so that others may be brought to glorify Him. The question then arises as to how this is to be done. That is the subject which now confronts us. The answer, in a word, can be put like this. We are to live a life of righteousness. That is the one word that sums up Christian living, righteousness. And the theme of the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount is in many ways just that the kind of life of righteousness which the Christian is to live. Until you come to 7.14, that is the great theme which is expounded in various ways. What is this righteousness which we have to manifest? What is its character? Verses 17 to 20 in this fifth chapter are a kind of general introduction to that subject. Here, our Lord introduces this whole question of the righteousness and the righteous life which are to characterize the Christian. You observe his method. Before he comes to the details, he lays down certain general principles. He has an introduction before he really begins to explain and expound his subject. Some people, I gather, do not like introductions. In that case, they do not like our Lord's method. It is always vital to start with principles. The people who go wrong in practice are always those who are not sure of their principles. It seems to me that this is most vital today. We live in an age of specialists, and the specialist is almost invariably a man who is so lost in details that he often forgets principles. Most of the breakdown in life today is due to the fact that certain basic principles have been forgotten. In other words, if only everybody lived a godly life, we should have no need for this multiplicity of conferences and organizations. The method of starting with basic principles is something we see here as our Lord goes on to deal with this question of righteousness. He does so by laying down in this paragraph two categorical propositions. In the first, in verses 17 and 18, he says that everything he is going to teach is in absolute harmony with the entire teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures. There is nothing in this teaching which in any way contradicts them. The second proposition, which he lays down in verses 19 and 20, 
is that this teaching of his, which is in such harmony with the Old Testament, is in complete disharmony with, and in utter contradiction of, the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. Those are two great pronouncements, and they are important, because we shall never understand the record of our Lord's life which we have in the four Gospels, unless we grasp these two principles. Here we have an explanation of all the antagonism towards him which was displayed by the Pharisees, the scribes, the doctors of the law, and various other people. Here is the explanation of all the troubles that he had to endure and the misunderstanding to which he was so constantly subjected. Another general observation is that our Lord was not content with making positive statements only. He made negative ones also. He was not content with just stating his doctrine. He also criticized other doctrines. I am emphasizing that again in passing because, as I have pointed out repeatedly in dealing with this sermon, for some extraordinary reason, a peculiar flabbiness, intellectual and moral, seems to have entered into many people, evangelicals included. Many, alas, seem to object in these days to negative teaching. Let us have positive teaching, they say. You need not criticize other views. But our Lord definitely did criticize the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. He exposed and denounced it frequently. And it is essential, of course, that we should do the same. We are all talking about ecumenicity. And the argument is put forward that because of a certain common danger, it is not the time to be arguing about points of doctrine. Rather, we should all be friendly and pull together. Not at all, according to our Lord. The fact that the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches are called Christian is no reason why we should not expose the corruptness and the dangerous errors of their systems. Our Lord, then, does not stop with the positive, and that, in turn, leads to another question. Why did he do this? Why this kind of introduction to the detailed part of the sermon? I think the answer is very plain. As we read the four Gospels, we see clearly that there was much confusion with regard to our Lord's teaching. He was undoubtedly a great problem to his contemporaries. There were so many unusual things about him. He himself, for instance, was unusual. He was not a Pharisee, and he had not been trained as a Pharisee. He had not been to the customary schools. So they looked at him and said, Who is this fellow, this man who teaches and makes these dogmatic pronouncements? What is this? He did not come into his position as a teacher along the usual lines or through the customary channels, and that at once created a problem. The leaders and the people were rather perplexed about it. But not only that, as I have been reminding you, he deliberately criticized the Pharisees and the scribes and their teaching. Now they were the acknowledged leaders and religious teachers, and everyone was prepared to do what they said. They were quite outstanding in the nation. But suddenly, here was a man who did not belong to their schools, who not only taught, but also denounced their authoritative teaching. Then, over and above that, he did not spend all his time in expounding the law. He preached an extraordinary doctrine of grace and of the love of God which introduced such things as the parable of the prodigal son. But even worse, 
he mixed with publicans and sinners, sitting down and eating with them. Not only did he not seem to observe all the rules and regulations, he actually seemed to be deliberately breaking them. In his words, criticized their official teaching, and in practice, he did the same. So questions began to arise at once because of his theory and because of his practice. Does this new teacher not believe the holy writings? The Pharisees and the scribes claim to be the exponents and the expounders of the Holy Scripture. Does this Jesus of Nazareth therefore not believe it? Has he come to do away with it? Is his teaching absolutely new? Is it denouncing the law and the prophets? Is he teaching that there is some new way to God, some new way of pleasing God? Is he turning his back resolutely upon the whole of the past? Now these were the questions which our Lord well knew were bound to arise because of his personal character and because of what he taught. So, here, at the very introduction to the detailed teaching, he met the criticism beforehand. In particular, he warned his disciples lest they should be confounded and influenced by the talk and criticism which they were so likely to hear. He prepared their mind and outlook by laying down these two fundamental postulates. Our Lord had already told them in general what they were to be like and the kind of righteousness they were to manifest. Now, as he came to detailed and specific questions, he wanted them to understand the whole setting. I am calling attention to this not out of a theoretical interest and not merely because it is a fresh section of this sermon which we must expound. I am doing so because it is a very urgent and practical question for every one of us who is in any way concerned about the Christian life. For this is not merely an old problem. It is also a very modern one. It is not something theoretical, for there are large numbers of people who are still in trouble on this very question. There are those who stumble at Christ and His salvation because of this very point of His relationship to the law. And therefore I say that it is vital we should look at it. Indeed, there are some who say that this verse we are considering actually increases their problem instead of diminishing it. There are two main difficulties which are raised with regard to this. There is one school which believes that all our Lord himself did was to continue the teaching of the law. You know the school, although it is not quite as popular now as it was some thirty years ago or more. Its followers say that they see a great difference between the four Gospels and the New Testament epistles. The Gospels are nothing but a very wonderful exposition of the ancient law, and Jesus of Nazareth was only a teacher of the law. The real founder of so-called Christianity, they continue, was the man we know as the Apostle Paul, with all his doctrine and legalism. The four Gospels are nothing but law, ethical teaching, and moral instruction, and there is nothing in them about the doctrine of justification by faith, sanctification, and such things. That is the work of the Apostle Paul with his theology. The real tragedy, they say, is that the simple, glorious gospel of Jesus was turned by this other man into what has become Christianity, which is entirely different from the religion of Jesus. Those who are old enough will remember that towards the turn of the century, and after there were several books written along that line, the religion of Jesus and the faith of Paul, and so on, which tried to show the great contrast between Jesus and Paul, 
That is one difficulty. The second main difficulty is the exact opposite to that, and it is interesting to observe how heresies almost invariably cancel one another out. For the second view is that Christ abolished the law completely, and that he introduced grace in place of it. The law was given by Moses. They quote, "Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ." The Christian, therefore, has nothing to do with the law. They argue that the Bible says we are under grace, so we must never even mention the law. You remember we dealt with this argument in chapter one. We considered there the view which said that the Sermon on the Mount had nothing to do with us today, that it had reference to the people to whom it was preached, and will have reference to the Jews in the future kingdom age. It is interesting to note how these old troubles still persist. Our Lord answers both at one and the same time in this vital statement in verses seventeen and eighteen, which deals with this specific matter of his relationship to the law and to the prophets. What has he to say about it? Perhaps the best thing to do at this point is to define our terms and to be perfectly clear that we understand their meaning. What is meant by the law and the prophets? The answer is the whole of the Old Testament. You can turn up passages for yourself, and you will find that wherever this expression is used, it includes the entire Old Testament canon. What then is meant by the law, in particular, at this point? It seems to me we must agree that the word, as used here, means the entire law. This, as given to the children of Israel, consisted of three parts. The moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. If you read again the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you will find that this was how God gave it. The moral law consisted of the Ten Commandments and the great moral principles that were laid down once and forever. Then there was the judicial law, which means the legislative law given for the nation of Israel in its peculiar circumstances at that time. Which indicated how men were to order their behavior in relationship to others, and the various things they were and were not to do. Finally, there was the ceremonial law concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, and all the ritual and ceremonial in connection with their worship in the temple and elsewhere. At this point, we must assert that the law includes all that, so that our Lord is here referring to everything that it teaches directly about life. Conduct and behavior. We must remember also, however, that the law includes everything that is taught by the various types, the different offerings, and all the details that are given concerning them in the Old Testament. Many Christian people said that they find the books of Exodus and Leviticus so boring. Why all this detail? They ask about the meal and the salt and all these various other things. Well. All these are just types, and they are all prophecy in their way of what was done perfectly, once and forever, by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I say, therefore, that when we talk of the law, we must remember that all this is included, not only the positive, direct teachings of these books and their injunctions on how life should be lived, but also all that they suggest. And foretell with regard to what was to come. The law then must be taken in its entirety. Actually, we shall find that from verse twenty-one onwards, 
When our Lord speaks of the law, He is speaking only of the moral section. But in this general statement here, He is talking about it all. What is meant by the prophets? The term clearly means all that we have in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. There again, we must never forget that there are two main aspects. The prophets actually taught the law, and they applied and interpreted it. They went to the nation and told them that the trouble with them was that they were not keeping God's law, their main endeavor being to call the people back to a true understanding of it. To this end, they caused it to be read again and expounded. But in addition, they did foretell the coming of the Messiah. They were foretellers, but at the same time, they were foretellers. Both aspects are included in the prophetic message. That leaves us with one final term, the term fulfill. There has been a great deal of confusion with regard to its meaning, so we must point out at once that it does not mean to complete, to finish. It does not mean to add to something that has already been begun. This popular interpretation is an entire misunderstanding of the word. It has been said that the Old Testament began a certain teaching and that it carried on so far and up to a point. Then our Lord came and carried it a stage further, rounding it off and fulfilling it, as it were. That is not the true interpretation. The real meaning of the word fulfill is to carry out, to fulfill in the sense of giving full obedience to it, literally carrying out everything that has been said and stated in the law and in the prophets. Having defined our terms, let us now consider what our Lord is really saying to us. What is his actual teaching? I'm going to put it in the form of two principles, and in order to do so, I'm going to take verse 18 before verse 17. The two statements come together and are connected by the word for. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And here is the reason why. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. The first proposition is that God's law is absolute. It can never be changed, not even modified to the slightest extent. It is absolute and eternal. Its demands are permanent and can never be abrogated or reduced till heaven and earth pass. That last expression means the end of the age. Heaven and earth are signs of permanence. While they are there, says our Lord, nothing shall pass away, not even a jot or a tittle. There is nothing smaller than these, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet and the smallest point in the smallest letter. Heaven and earth shall not pass away until every minute detail shall be absolutely and entirely fulfilled. Now that is the pronouncement, and it is, of course, one of the most momentous and important pronouncements that has ever been made. Our Lord emphasized it by the word for, which always calls attention to something and denotes seriousness and importance. Then he adds to the importance by saying, Verily I say unto you. He is impressing the statement with all the authority he possesses. The law that God has laid down, and which you can read in the Old Testament, 
and everything that has been said by the prophets is going to be fulfilled down to the minutest detail, and it will hold and stand until this absolute fulfillment has been entirely carried out. I do not think I need emphasize the vital importance of that any further. Then, in the light of that, our Lord makes his second statement to the effect that obviously, therefore, he has not come to destroy or indeed to modify, even to the slightest extent, the teaching of the law or the prophets. He has come, he tells us, rather to fulfill and to carry them out and to give them a perfect obedience. There we see the central claim which is made by our Lord. It is, in other words, that all the law and all the prophets point to him and will be fulfilled in him down to the smallest detail. Everything that is in the law and the prophets culminates in Christ, and he is the fulfillment of them. It is the most stupendous claim that he ever made. This is a theme which we must elaborate, but here first is the immediate deduction. Our Lord Jesus Christ in these two verses confirms the whole of the Old Testament. He puts his seal of authority, his imprimatur, upon the whole of the Old Testament canon, the whole of the law and the prophets. Read these four Gospels and watch his quotations from the Old Testament. You can come to one conclusion only, namely, that he believed it all, and not only certain parts of it. He quoted almost every part of it. To the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament was the Word of God. It was Scripture. It was something absolutely unique and apart. It had authority which nothing else has ever possessed, nor can possess. Here, then, is a vital statement with regard to this whole matter of the authority of the Old Testament. You will find so many people today who seem to think they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ fully and yet more or less reject the Old Testament. It must be said, however, that the question of our attitude to the Old Testament inevitably raises the question of our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say that we do not believe in the account of the creation or in Abraham as a person, if we do not believe that the law was given by God to Moses, but think that it was a very clever bit of Jewish legislation produced by a man who was a good leader and who obviously had certain sound ideas about public health and hygiene, if we say that, we are, in fact, flatly contradicting everything our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said about himself, the law, and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament, according to him, is the Word of God. Not only that, it is all going to stand until it has all been fulfilled. Every jot and tittle, everything has meaning. Everything is going to be carried out down to the smallest detail imaginable. It is God's law. It is God's enactment. Nor were the words of the prophets words of men who were simply poets, and who, having this poetic insight, saw a little further into life than other people, and thus inspired made wonderful statements about life and how to live it. Not at all. These were men of God who were given their message by Him. What they said is all true, and all will be fulfilled down to the smallest detail. It was all given with reference to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all these things, and it is only as they are fully carried out in him that they can in any sense come to an end. 
Now this, of course, is also of vital significance. People have often wondered why it was that the early church decided to incorporate the Old Testament with the New Testament. So many people who are Christians say that they like reading the Gospels, but that they are not interested in the Old Testament, and that they do not think those five books of Moses and their message have anything to do with them. The early church did not take that view, and for this reason, the one casts light upon the other, and each, in a sense, can only be understood in the light of the other. These two testaments must always go together. As the great St. Augustine once put it, the New Testament is latent in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is patent in the New Testament. But above all, here is this pronouncement by the Son of God himself, in which he says that he has not come to supersede the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. No. He seems to say, All this is of God, and I am come to carry it out and fulfill it. He regarded it all as the Word of God and finally authoritative. And you and I, if we are to be true followers of Him and believers in Him, are to do the same. The moment you begin to question the authority of the Old Testament, you are of necessity questioning the authority of the Son of God Himself, and you will find yourself in endless trouble and difficulty. If you once begin to say that He was just a child of His age, and was limited in certain respects because of that and liable to error, you are seriously qualifying the biblical doctrine as to his full, absolute, and unique deity. You must be very careful, therefore, in what you say about the Scriptures. Watch his quotations from them, the quotations from the Law and the Prophets, the quotations from the Psalms. He quotes them everywhere. To him, they are always the Scripture which has been given, and which, he says in John 10.35, cannot be broken. It is God's own word that is going to be fulfilled to the minutest detail and which will last while heaven and earth are in existence.